Part One, Chapter Two of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Two, The Hudson's Bay Fur Company. Captain Creventy, Mrs. Barnett, what do you think of Lieutenant Jasper Hobson? I think he is an officer who will go far. What do you mean by the words will go far? Do you mean that he will go beyond the twenty-fourth parallel? Captain Creventy could not help smiling at Mrs. Paulina Barnett's question. They were talking together near the stove, whilst the guests were passing backwards and forwards between the eating and drinking tables. Madam, replied the captain, all that a man can do will be done by Jasper Hobson. The company has charged him to explore the north of their possessions and to establish a factory as near as possible to the confines of the American continent, and he will establish it. That is a great responsibility for Lieutenant Hobson, said the traveller. It is, madam, but Jasper Hobson has never yet drawn back from a task imposed upon him, however formidable it may have appeared. I can quite believe it, Captain, replied Mrs. Barnett. And we shall now see the lieutenant at work. But what induces the company to construct a fort on the shores of the Arctic Ocean? They have a powerful motive, madam, replied the captain. I may add a double motive. At no very distant date, Russia will probably cede her American possessions to the government of the United States. When this session has taken place, the company will find access to the Pacific Ocean extremely difficult, unless the Northwest Passage. Discovered by McClure, be practicable. Note: Captain Creventy's prophecy has since been realized. Fresh explorations will decide this, for the Admiralty is about to send a vessel, which will coast along the North American continent from Bering Strait to Coronation Gulf, on the eastern side of which the new art is to be established. If the enterprise succeed, this point will become an important factory. The centre of the northern fur trade, the transport of furs across the Indian territories involves a vast expenditure of time and money. Whereas, if the new route be available, steamers will take them from the new fort to the Pacific Ocean in a few days. That would indeed be an important result of the enterprise, if this northwest passage can really be used," replied Mrs. Paulina Barnett. "But I think you spoke of a double motive. I did, madam." Said the captain, and I alluded to a matter of vital interest to the company. But I must beg of you to allow me to explain to you in a few words how the present state of things came about, how it is, in fact, that the very source of the trade of this once flourishing company is in danger of destruction. The captain then proceeded to give a brief sketch of the history of the famous Hudson's Bay Company. In the earliest times, men employed the skins and furs of animals as clothing. The fur trade is therefore of very great antiquity. Luxury in dress increased to such an extent that sumptuary laws were enacted to control too great extravagance, especially in furs, for which there was a positive passion. There and the furs of Siberian squirrels were prohibited at the middle of the twelfth century. In 1553, Russia founded several establishments in the northern steppes. And England lost no time in following her example. The trade in sables 
ermines, and beavers, was carried on through the agency at the Samoids, but during the reign of Elizabeth a royal decree restricted the use of costly furs to such an extent, that for several years this branch of industry was completely paralyzed. On the 2nd May, 1670, a license to trade in furs in the Hudson Bay's territory was granted to the company, which numbered several men of high rank amongst its shareholders. The Duke of York, the Duke of Abermarle, the Earl of Shaftesbury, etc. Its capital was then only 8,420 pounds. Private companies were formidable rivals to its successes, and French agents, making Canada their headquarters, ventured on hazardous but most lucrative expeditions. The active competition of these bold hunters threatened the very existence of the infant company. The conquest of Canada, however, somewhat lessened the danger of its position. Three years after the taking of Quebec, 1776, the fur trade received a new impulse. English traders became familiar with the difficulties of trade of this kind. They learned the customs of the country, the ways of the Indians, and their system of exchange of goods. But for all this, the company as yet made no profits whatever. Moreover, toward 1784, some merchants of Montreal combined to explore the fur country, and founded that powerful Northwest Company, which soon became the centre of the fur trade. In 1798, the new company shipped furs to the value of no less than 120,000 pounds, and the existence of the Hudson's Bay Company was again threatened. We must add that the Northwest Company shrank from no act, however iniquitous, if its interests were at stake. Its agents imposed on their own employees, speculated on the misery of the Indians, robbed them when they had themselves made them drunk, setting at defiance the Act of Parliament forbidding the sale of spirituous liquors on Indian territory and consequently realizing immense profits, in spite of the competition of the various Russian and American companies which had sprung up. The American Fur Company, amongst others, founded in 1809, with a capital of a million of dollars, which was carrying on operations on the west of the Rocky Mountains. The Hudson's Bay Company was probably in greater danger of ruin than any other. But in 1821, after much discussion, a treaty was made in accordance with which its old rival, the Northwest Company, became amalgamated with it, the two receiving the common title of the Hudson's Bay Fur Company. Now the only rival of this important association is the American St. Louis Fur Company. The Hudson's Bay Company has numerous establishments scattered over a domain extending over 3,700,000 square miles. Its principal factories are situated on James Bay, at the mouth of the Severn, in the south, and towards the frontiers of Upper Canada, on Lake Athabasca, Winnipeg, Superior, Mythe, Buffalo, and near the Columbia, Mackenzie, Saskatchewan, and Assiniboine Rivers, etc. Fort York, commanding the course of the River Nelson, is the headquarters of the company, and contains its principal fur depot, Moreover, in 1842, it took a lease of all the Russian establishments in North America at an annual rent of £40,000, so that it is now working, on its own account, the vast tracts of country between the Mississippi and the Pacific Ocean. It has sent out intrepid explorers in every direction, 
Hearn towards the Polar Sea, in 1770, to the discovery of the Coppermine River. Franklin, in 1819 to 1822, along 5,550 miles of the American coast. Mackenzie, who, after having discovered the river to which he gave his name, reached the shores of the Pacific at 52 degrees 24 minutes north latitude. The following is a list of the quantities of skins and furs dispatched to Europe by the Hudson's Bay Company in 1833-34, to which will give an exact idea of the extent of its trade. Beavers, 1,074. Skins and young beavers, 92,288. Muskrats, 694,092. Badgers, 1,069. Bears, 7,451. Ermines, 491. Foes, 9,937. Lynxes, 14,255. Sables, 64,490. Polecats, 25,100. Otters, 22,303. Raccoons, 713. Swans, 7,918. Wolves, 8,484. Wolverines, 1,571. Such figures ought to bring in a large profit to the Hudson's Bay Company, but unfortunately they have not been maintained, and for the last twenty years have been decreasing. The cause of this decline was the subject of Captain Creventy's explanation to Mrs. Paulina Barnett. Until 1839, madam, said he, the company was in a flourishing condition. In that year, the number of furs exported was 2,350,000, but since then the trade has gradually declined, and this number is now reduced by one-half at least. But what do you suppose is the cause of this extraordinary decrease in the exportation of furs? inquired Mrs. Barnett. The depopulation of the hunting territories caused by the activity, and, I must add, the want of foresight of the hunters. The game was trapped and killed without mercy. These massacres were conducted in the most reckless and short-sighted fashion. Even females with young and their little ones did not escape. The consequence is that the animals whose fur is valuable have become extremely rare. The otter has almost entirely disappeared, and is only to be found near the islands of the North Pacific. Small colonies of beavers have taken refuge on the shores of the most distant rivers. It is the same with many other animals, compelled to flee before the invasion of the hunters. The traps, once crowded with game, are now empty. The price of skins is rising just when a great demand exists for furs. Hunters have gone away in disgust, leaving none but the most intrepid and indefatigable who now penetrate to the very confines of the American continent. Yes, said Mrs. Paulina Barnett, the fact of the fur-bearing animals having taken refuge beyond the polar circle is a sufficient explanation of the company's motive in founding a factory on the borders of the Arctic Ocean. Not only so, madam, replied the captain. The company is also compelled to seek a more northern centre of operations, for an act of Parliament has lately greatly reduced its domain. And the motive for this reduction? inquired the traveller. 
A very important question of political economy was involved, madam, one which could not fail greatly to interest the statesmen of Great Britain. In a word, the interests of the company and those of civilization are antagonistic. It is to the interest of the company to keep the territory belonging to it in a wild, uncultivated condition. Every attempt at clearing ground was piteously put a stop to, as it drove away the wild animals, so that the monopoly enjoyed by the Hudson's Bay Company was detrimental to all agricultural enterprise. All questions not immediately relating to their own particular trade were relentlessly put aside by the governors of the association. It was this despotic and, in a certain sense, immoral system which provoked the measures taken by Parliament. And in 1837, a commission appointed by the colonial secretary decided it was necessary to annex to Canada all the territories suitable for cultivation, such as the Red River and Saskatchewan districts, and to leave to the company only that portion of its land which appeared to be incapable of future civilization. The next year the company lost the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, which it held direct from the colonial office. And you will now understand, madam, how the agents of the company, having lost their power over their old territories, are determined, before giving up their trade, to try to work the little-known countries of the North, and so open a communication with the Pacific by means of the Northwest Passage. Mrs. Paulina Barnett was now well informed as to the ulterior projects of the celebrated company. Captain Creventy had given her a graphic sketch of the situation, and it is probable he would have entered into further details, had not an incident cut short his harangue. Corporal Joliffe announced in a loud voice that, with Mrs. Joliffe's assistance, he was about to mix the punch. This news was received as it deserved. The bowl, or rather the basin, was filled with the precious liquid. It contained no less than ten pints of coarse rum. Sugar, measured out by Mrs. Joliffe, was piled up at the bottom, and on the top floated slices of lemon shriveled with age. Nothing remained to be done but to light this alcoholic lake, and the corporal, match in hand, awaited the order of his captain, as if he were about to spring a mine. "'All right, Joliffe,' at last said Captain Creventy. The light was applied to the bowl, and in a moment the punch was in flames, whilst the guests applauded and clapped their hands. Ten minutes afterwards, full glasses of the delightful beverage were circulating amongst the guests, fresh bitters for them coming forward in endless succession, like spectators on the stock exchange. Hurrah! 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 Three cheers for Mrs. Barnett! A cheer for the captain! In the midst of these joyful shouts, cries were heard from outside. Silence immediately fell upon the company assembled. "'Sergeant Long,' said the captain, "'go and see what is the matter.' And at the chief's order, the sergeant, leaving his glass unfinished, left the room. End of chapter 2